Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders Podcast. My name is Brady Huggett, and I am the host for today's show. The guest is James Wilson, or Jim Wilson, I guess, depending on how well you know him. Uh, Jim is a professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He is also director of the gene therapy program there, and he's on the industry side. He's founder and chief scientific advisor at Regenics Bio and founder and chairman of the Scientific Advisory Council at Dimension Therapeutics. And... Uh, beyond that, he's also at the forefront of gene therapy research and has been for many, many years. He was part of the first clinical trial for a gene therapy product, which took place at Penn, and that's absolutely something we discussed in this podcast, um, as well as his love of motocross racing, which I did not know, and how he met his wife, and what else. We talked about uh, some of the issues that remain for gene therapy, including pricing, so all that coming up. But I would like to say that uh, I had him in, had a nice chat, he left, and I realized that the file was corrupted, the recording. However, we have backups for just exactly this type of thing, and what you're going to hear is the backup file. I apologize a little for the audio. It's not as great as I would like, but it's okay. So sorry for that. Uh, I will have more to say later. Listen up. Here's your First Rounders podcast with Jim Wilson. So how long have you been at Penn now? 23 years. Ah, long time. Yeah. And how often do you get to New York? About once every other week. For, to me with bankers? Usually related to business with uh, the two companies that I started, primarily investors. So Regenics Bio being the current one. And Dimension Therapeutics. Yeah, okay. And then, but so you're not from, 23 years, you're not from Philly. No, I grew up in the Midwest, actually, and moved there after uh, five years at University of Michigan, which was my first faculty job. Uh-huh. Um, and I uh, was recruited to really create a gene therapy program. But so in the Midwest, in Michigan? Yeah. What yeah. part? I was, uh, I was born in Kalamazoo. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Well, I I'm actually grew up in Michigan, um, outside of Detroit. Yeah. What part? Gross Point. Saint yeah, Clark's no, Shores. I know Gross Point. Yeah. yeah. Went to college, Albion College. I don't know Albion, no. Albion is, you know, it's uh, along I-94, right west of Jackson. Okay. Um, small liberal arts college, and then from there uh, went to the University of Michigan where I uh, studied for both MD and PhD. Um, from there, went well, can to, I, wait, can I, can I back you up? So yeah. did, when, when you're in high school in Gross Point, did you, 
I mean, was this always your plan? Did you think you, the sciences were what you're going to study? That was your interest? When did that come about? Well, I actually, in high school, my primary focus was athletics. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it was not academics. I don't remember opening a book. Really? In, in high school. <laughs> um, went to Albion College. Uh, was planning to play Division Two football. But it turns out, right sort of at the last minute, my father... Uh, suggested that I may not have the skills for football to be a profession for me. And, uh, you mean beyond college? Beyond college. Uh -huh. and, he, and, and that really... How uh, did he do that? He just uh, very directly uh, told me that I was too slow. <laughs> was that it? What, what position are we talking about? I was playing linebacker. Ah, okay. Well, it, so too slow, but we'll also say by today's standards, probably not big enough, right? Linebackers probably not big now. enough. Yeah, yeah right, yeah. right, back then. But... Um, and went to went to college and went to Albion really at the last minute. Um, Division three, uh, the coach was delighted that I decided to go to a Division three school to play football. And it, and and it turns out I didn't play football. You didn't did not. No. And the reason is my other sport. I was a professional motocross racer. And uh, after my senior year of college, I lost a lot of weight so I could be more competitive on the motorcycle. Uh -huh. And I just was not motivated to get back in the weight room to gain weight. So I went to Albion, disappointed the coach, because I was the star recruit. You showed up, whatever, 30 pounds lighter? I don't know how much, but... Probably 30 pounds lighter, exactly. I, I still could have competed, but I, I just wasn't motivated at that point. Went to... started classes. But, uh, so, but sorry, you were still doing the motocross then? I tried to, uh, because I just had received my professional license. Um... And, uh, and I just couldn't keep the bike maintained, you know, the dorm, I had to find a yeah. place, you know, yeah. to, to house the bike and, um, and it just wasn't going to work out. I, I, I had hoped that I'd be able to get back to it, you know, uh, but, um, and thought maybe freshman year wasn't the time to continue that. So we'll, we'll move off this in a second, yeah. but I mean, people, I understand how people are attracted to football and, and they see the sport all the time, but how does one get into motocross? I'm an adrenaline junkie, I'm, uh, and, and, and it didn't stop there, uh, uh, but I, um, I just love the speed, I love the risk, um, I love flying through the air on the bike, uh, you know, that just, I, I started that when I was very young. On, on a bicycles and then moved to motorcycles? Or bicycles and a mini bike. Ah, I see. Uh, and, and I must say, growing up in Gross Point, where the primary sports were tennis and golf, yeah. I was a little bit of an outsider. Yeah. Uh, you know, doing that. And I'd, I'd network with friends that were in, you know, other suburbs. And, uh, um, but I, I just, uh, and I, I still think about that. But my wife basically has said no motorcycles, so no more motorcycles. Yeah, I guess you have to give that up eventually, right? I mean... Well, the other problem is, is that uh, in terms of land conservation, that the bikes tear up the, uh, you know, tear up natural lands, and so there's it's it's more difficult to find a place to ride. But um, but I just I just had to give it up. So I was at Albion. Yeah. Not playing football. Coach was, disappointed. Well, coach disappointed. Not racing my 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 motorcycle, and I met uh, this professor um, in a calculus class. I, I had always in high school done very well in math. Uh -huh. I basically did homework during class. And it, and it turns out that he had a side job uh, working with the CIA uh, uh, decoding. Uh, so he was this uh, incredibly brilliant, eccentric, young professor uh, 
and uh, and I immediately gravitated to the guy for some reason, uh, and it and that changed my life. And the, the the field, I mean, was it partially his field? I mean, if you're if you're as you said, an adrenaline junkie, and you're into things like motocross and mm-hmm. flying through the air, and then mm-hmm. someone's doing work for the CIA, you said, I mean, that's I could see the attraction there. Well, that there there was an attraction in addition to the fact that at that point what my professional aspirations were, were to, to join the FBI. Uh, I had not really developed an interest in science at that time. So, so it probably was that connection. But, but what really, um, the real connection was he, he challenged me intellectually. And so uh, apparently I, I, I had some capacity despite my B average out of high school. Right. And, and, and it was his class and him, his, his name was Professor Wenzel. Um, that uh, then, then I took Calc 2 and then I took differential equations and I, did, you know, I, I just kept going. He just kept pushing me and pushing me. But it was that class freshman year at Albion where I decided uh, that I would redirect my energies away from athletics into math and science. And it turns out that semester I, I received two A's and two B's uh-huh. um, and I studied and I'm competitive. And I said, I'm not going to get another B. I didn't get another B. It's familiar, yeah. <laughs> it just, you know, I just the redirected. Of, the whole time, the rest, the whole time, the rest were A's, you know. Uh, but, but it was, it was that math teacher that um, kindled uh, a spark. That changed your life. Really? Changed, completely changed my life. But so one thing, uh, why the FBI? Do you, do you know why you were in the FBI? You know, I, I really, I mean, that continued through medical school. Even in medical school, I, I had an interest in uh, forensic pathology mm-hmm. as well. Uh, I, I don't, I, it didn't come from my family. My, I come from a family of physicians, and um, so I don't know exactly where that came from. Okay, so then you're, you're leaving Albion at this point, right? You've gotten two Bs your freshman year, and after that it was straight A's all the way through. Right. And that was basically math the whole way? Math, physics, and chemistry. Okay, so we haven't actually gotten any biology yet for you. Well, one biology course that I hated. Huh. <laughs> I just hated it. Well, you have to remember back then, biology was... Cutting frogs what, open. Yeah. Exactly. It was field biology and, 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 and descriptive biology. Yeah. I also <clears throat> had the opportunity to, to, to do research uh, in physical organic chemistry. I couldn't do it at Albion because there really weren't the opportunities, and I received a, uh, an NSF fellowship to go to Ohio State and was in a lab of uh, a really famous... Uh, organic chemist, physical organic chemist, who um, was into modeling biochemical reactions with, with simpler organic molecules. And I had all the skills to do the project because it had a lot to do with modeling complex uh, stop-flow reactions, so uh-huh. I could actually generate the models. I knew enough about synthetic organic chemistry through my time at Albion that I could synthesize whatever uh, compounds that we needed, and I could actually then, with some help, do the reactions, capture the data, uh, and um, and do independent research. And you know, at that point, then I said, "Well, this is it." You know, and it, and it was in chemistry. I, w- I was going to be a chemist at that point in time. I, I love the molecular aspect. I love knowing mechanisms, mm-hmm. and 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 applied for graduate programs in chemistry. Only to Michigan or several places? Oh, well, no, Michigan was an afterthought. Ah, okay. How'd so, that so, so I applied to um, um, Harvard, uh, Caltech, Stanford, uh-huh. 
um, in, in some other programs. But that was at a time when I took a course um, in my senior year uh, and, and received, I think it was the first edition of Leninger, which was biochemistry. Mm-hmm. And, and I became intrigued with the possibility that maybe biology could become molecular. So when I applied for graduate programs in chemistry, I asked to, be, to, to meet with professors who, um, who uh, had a sort of a biological orientation. Uh-huh. And, there, and there are two people that I met that just reinforced this. It was at Harvard, Mark Tashney, one of the most um, animated, brilliant uh, uh, guys. And I, and I remember sitting in his office and, and, and he was sharing with me his view of transcriptional regulation and prokaryotes. And I uh-huh. said, well, it's not just descriptive. Maybe it's true. Maybe the future of biology may be molecular. Then I went to, uh, to Caltech, and Tom Antiotis, who had just arrived, was unpacking his boxes. And I remember meeting with him in the, in the, in the basement, and he was uh, uh, talking about his research and, uh, with the goal of understanding transcriptional regulation in eukaryotes. And I said, well, here it is. Right. So, so the, this sort of unfolded during my interviews, and, you know, I, I did not— This is all pre-admission. This was pre-admission, right? And, you know, I did not sort of have that perspective from Albion, although I, I, they provided me with fantastic tools. And, and then I started to think about, well, maybe the future of biology is molecular, and maybe the direction I ought to go is um, a combined program where I actually get training in medicine, uh-huh. But uh, obtain you know solid uh, um, uh, education and opportunities in research, and, and so I applied to a couple programs, got into Cornell Rockefeller and uh, and also the the University of Michigan. I was going to go to Cornell Rockefeller. Who wouldn't? And right. Then, and then and then I met a young woman who turned out that I married and, and and she was two years younger than I was. So I ended up staying at, wait. Oh, I see. And I stayed at Michigan so we could stay close. Uh, but I also met a guy at Michigan uh, during an interview uh, where I showed up, um, was interviewing a variety of people and said, do you have anyone on the faculty who actually ha- has a perspective, a medical perspective, but it's a good fundamental biochemist. This is in the department of biochemistry. And he said, this guy by the name of Bill Kelly, uh, we recruited the university did to run the Department of Medicine, and um, he may be someone you talk to. And they called, and and he had time available, which is unusual because he was extremely busy. I sat in his office, and he got to the board, and he started describing the metabolic pathway of purines, and and this is sort of molecular biochemistry, uh-huh. uh, because back then molecular was metabolic; it wasn't protein, it mm-hmm. wasn't DNA. And, and, and he pointed out that a defect in this particular enzyme led to this constellation of, uh, of findings and pathology uh, that was very different than an enzyme that was right next to it. And it was severe combined immune deficiency for adenosine deaminase deficiency. And then right two steps uh, laterally, uh, a defect in, in an enzyme called HPRT caused Leshenian syndrome. I said, this is the way to study molecular mechanisms in human biology. And, and, and despite the fact that I probably was going to stay because of my girlfriend. You knew that already. But with, with meeting Bill Kelly, I said, this is it. And so I, as soon as I graduated, I just immediately went to Michigan so I could start doing research. I had to rotate a few labs. But, 
but in the first year of medical school, um, I was in medical school, but I was working in the lab. You did get your MD though, right? Did get my did, MD. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I did, I did get my MD, but I, you knew you weren't going to practice, you weren't going to be a physician. Well, I, I, I wasn't sure at that time. I just loved research and it, and it was the most incredible experience for me, um, during graduate school because he had given me the uh, project to define the molecular basis of Leshnaya syndrome. And, and this is a disease that causes uh, uh, gout, but also this bizarre uh, behavioral abnormalities of, of self-mutilation and also choreoathetoid movements like Huntington's. It's really one enzyme defect causes all of this. Uh, this pathology I, I thought was fascinating, but I was supposed to identify the molecular basis. That was that would have been around 1980, mm -hmm. 19, late 1970s. So cloning DNA wasn't, the gene hadn't been cloned yet. So yeah. I, I learned how to sequence proteins. And then, and then I, would, I would travel the world, literally, um, meeting physicians who had Lesh-9 patients that had mutations in which there was residual enzyme. Because if there's no enzyme, there's nothing to, to characterize. Mm -hmm. So I'd meet the patients. We'd harvest the blood. I'd bring it back on the airplane, and then I'd spend uh, weeks weeks in the in the cold room, you know, purifying what residual enzyme there was, uh, and then identifying identifying muta uh, mutations. And this had only really been done in the setting of sickle and thal. Yeah. So it was a big deal, and and there was one particular patient that we studied who was quite famous because Bill Kelly had determined years ago it was published in Science that this patient had enzyme, but it was catalytically inactive, and that you could overcome it by providing more substrate. So, so I, I, uh, this was uh, an outstanding opportunity for us to define the mutation, and this, this young man uh, resided in North Carolina uh -huh. uh, and institutionalized because it's very hard to manage these, these patients because of their behavioral and neurologic uh, abnormalities. We would bring this patient up to Michigan for a month every year. We would, he would be admitted into our clinical research center, uh, and I would obtain blood cells so we would have enough because the challenge was getting enough material to yeah. purify enzyme. But he also would uh, be subject to a variety of other metabolic studies. But we brought him in September because we would take him to a football game. And, and Coach Schembechler would actually allow us to bring him onto the field. Uh, so, so this was a, an excitement for him. But one time that he was visiting, I actually identified his mutation, which was for me... Huge, yeah. I mean, huge. I mean, um, so incredibly exciting. And I remember I would also be responsible for taking the patients back on the plane um, because I was a medical student, and yeah. uh, which was a chore. And I remember bringing him back to... Uh, the old Raleigh-Durham airport, which was basically a shack back then. Yeah. Um, and, and, and his mom would always greet him, excited to see him, but then take him back to the institution. And I, and I that one particular time, uh, Edwin was struggling with going back home because he, lo he loved to stay with yeah. us in Ann Arbor. And, but I shared with her that we had discovered uh, his mutation with pride and excitement. And she looked at me. And paused and and asked the question, "Well, how's it going to help him?" Yeah, exactly. And and I it, it was like I got punched in the stomach. How did you answer? I I I don't know. I I don't I don't think it will. Yeah. 
And, and that, that changed my life. I mean, at that time, I said, I'm going to dedicate myself to science for genetic diseases, but I'm going to focus my work towards treatments. So not just, not just research for the sake of not, research, but yeah, and, that explains a lot, actually. And, and, and that's what, that was my goal. And I hope, ultimately, that we can get back to Leshnaya syndrome, but turns out that directing genes into the CNS is challenging. Yeah. So let me, t- two things. So how did you meet your wife? May I ask you that? I met my wife at a bar. The classic way, <laughs> right? the only way. Yeah. Like around the, around the campus or something? Or No, or actually, that was uh, the, the week before school started, and I was Hellwig chairman for my fraternity. Uh-huh. And there was a, 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 a member of the fraternity who uh, had been injured and couldn't participate in Hell Week. So I gave him a special Hell Week so that uh, he would feel part of that. Right. And, and she was there. She knew him. And I was giving this other guy a hard time. And, and she spoke up and said, don't be mean to him. <laughs> so I said, who are you? <laughs> that's amazing. So she saw you being mean to another human being and said, that's the guy I'm going to marry eventually, right? Well, at that point, she wasn't too, too enamored with no. me. But I was sort of smitten with her and then asked her out. And, How did you win her over after that beginning? <laughs> I don't know. I just, it took me a while. Time and patience. Yeah. Right? Um, okay, but then, so back to, I think science probably always feels this way, that you're right on the, on the cusp of new discoveries. But it, it seems like... Um, that really might have been true for you, right? I mean, science was moving in ways that, at least to you, you hadn't seen before, and it really opened yes. your mind up. Yeah, I, I, you know, we were able to accomplish a lot while, while I was a graduate student, sequencing minute quantities of protein. We would do Edmund degradation by hand. Uh-huh. To, so HPLC just came on board, Western blots. I mean, there was a this first wave of technology, kind of the revolution of technology. I was there, and I love technology. Love it. I'm a wonk. You know, anything that's cool and, and new, and uh, and I'm not afraid of technology. Uh, so so I think that helped me then. Yeah. Um, and I actually was mentored by by Bill uh, in, 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 in the following way. When, when you approach a scientific challenge, you know, some people ask, um, what can you do? To address that, and that's usually limited by what you think you can do. He 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 would flip it, and, and he would ask me, "What should you do? Uh-huh. How should you do this? Not how you think you can." And it and, and that liberates you, with respect to sort of technology and what you think you have access to. How should you really approach the problem? You mean if there were no, no limitations? If there no were, were, yeah. were, were no limitations of resource or whatever, how should you? You should start from that. And don't give up. And sometimes you realize that technology falls short or resources aren't there. But don't start and sell yourself short. And uh, and I think that was a lesson that I've carried forward. You get the MD at Michigan, also your PhD. Right. Right. So that's I'm not, that's five years you're there? Seven. Seven years. Okay. And then um, I think it's MIT after that. Yeah. So that that was strategic. During my time at Michigan... I read a paper uh, in Science uh, about an experiment done by Paul Berg at Stanford mm-hmm. and his graduate student, Richard Mulligan, where they had taken the prokaryotic version of the gene that I, and the protein that I was studying. And it was one of the first transfection experiments where they introduced that gene into a cell mm-hmm. that was deficient 
and this enzyme that came from a patient with Lechnine syndrome. And they just demonstrated that uh, you could transfect the cell and correct the defect. Uh, and that was right about the time that, that I had been struggling with where was I going to direct my right. future towards therapeutic approaches and how can you do this? Mm -hmm. And that's where the concept of gene therapy at least emerged for me was Richard Mulligan, Paul Berg had done the in vitro cure. And I said, that's it. Gene therapy. Right. So I, I was thinking about it, continued my research. And, and then when I had to decide what, was that, what I was going to do after um, graduate medical school, I did want to train as a physician. I, I felt that that was important. Ah, but, uh, but just so to help your research, you want to do that. Yeah. I, yeah I, you know, medical school doesn't teach how to be a doc. And, and, and I wanted uh, to do that. And I decided uh, that I would go to Boston for mm -hmm. my residency because there were three people that I was going to approach about a, about a postdoc. Richard had moved from Stanford to the Whitehead Institute. Yep. Tom Antiotis was at Harvard, and remember Tom that I had met while I was yep. uh, while I was uh, interviewing, mm -hmm. and then Stu Orkin also we had collaborated with uh, on some work with adenosine deaminase deficiency. He was at Children's in Boston, and so I went to Boston for my residency at Mass General Hospital really stalking these three guys <laughs> and just dreaming of, uh, of getting back in the lab. And I interviewed with all of them, but Richard was the guy. Uh, and I, and I you know, decided to work in his lab. Um, uh, did you need to convince him? I don't think so. Um, I think he, you know, I, I had published 21 papers as a graduate student. Most yeah. of them were first authored papers. Yeah. So, and I had a, a a medical background, and, and Richard didn't. He had one MD, I think, in the lab, but a good, solid science background. It's interesting at that time, the Whitehead Institute that we, we shared a floor with Bob Weinberg and David Baltimore, so it was a very rich yeah, intellectual yeah. Uh, environment. But bringing the medical perspective here, I think he he saw as valuable. So um, so he he accepted me in the lab and 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 uh, came into the lab. And did what? Well, while I was a uh, a resident at MGH, I read this paper uh, about a young patient, six-year-old girl whose name was Stormy Jones, mm -hmm. who uh, had underwent a liver heart transplant because she had this disease, familial hypercholesterolemia. And, and the heart transplant was to save her life because she had suffered repeated myocardial infarctions. The liver transplant was sort of the, uh, an early gene therapy experiment, uh -huh. uh, that she was deficient in an, uh, in an receptor expressed in liver called the LDL receptor, and they removed an otherwise normal liver to put a new liver in that uh, would uh, allow her uh, to have LDL receptor function and potentially decrease her cholesterol. And it was remarkable. The, 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 the figure in the paper is her cholesterol was 1,200 milligrams per deciliter before the liver transplant, and then it went to 200. And, and, and as I was thinking about gene therapy, uh, back then, all the focus was on bone marrow and retroviruses. Mm -hmm. and, but I, I thought that would be the way to go. Uh, that would be an alternative approach is target genes to liver and maybe for familial hypercholesterolemia, rather than having to subject the patient to a, a liver transplant, just put the genes directly into the liver. So when I came to Richard's lab, I, 
I, I asked him if it was okay if we explored the liver as a different target for gene therapy because everyone else pretty much had been thinking about really bone marrow. Yeah, were you the only one thinking this way? At that time, yes, hmm. as far as I know. So what did Richard say? said, great, yeah. go for it, <laughs> you know? And, and so I had to find someone who understood how to grow liver cells, and, and I figured that out. There was someone over at the Shriners who knew how to do that uh-huh. and, and how to culture them. I actually came up to Einstein and, 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 and gained some more experience in that and really demonstrated that you could put genes into primary cultures of liver cells. And there was a rabbit model for familial hypercholesterolemia that we gained access to. We were able to correct the gene defect in vitro. And then we thought about moving forward in, for in vivo studies, but at that point in time, everything was focused on ex vivo gene therapy, mm-hmm. where you manipulate the cells and transplant them back in, into the um, patient from which they were derived. But that really, there was no sort of standard hepatocyte transplantation uh, therapeutic intervention like there is for bone marrow. But anyway, we, we proceeded forward. We, we showed that we could uh, improve high cholesterol in rabbits using this approach. And, and that was at about the time then that I uh, was recruited to go back to Michigan uh, for, for a faculty job. But my time with Richard was really spent exploring other targets for gene transfer other than bone marrow, the liver being kind of the, the direction that I felt would be the way to go. We also did some work with endothelial cell gene transfer that also got a lot of attention as well. Is this, uh, I think, now correct me if I'm wrong here, but while you were at MIT, you published, I think, the first paper that showed therapeutic uses of gene therapy. Is that correct? Um, well, there were bone marrow applications uh, where, where uh, others had shown uh, that you could correct a gene. Well, for liver, for sure. It would uh, at least in liver, I would say that. I think true. that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah. yeah and that yeah. brought you a fair amount of attention. It did. Um, and it that's did. what brought you back to Michigan. Bill Kelly, who was my PhD mentor, yeah. um, had recruited me back in a, in a Howard Hughes in, right. Institute role, and I also was intrigued by the quality of recruits that they were bringing in. So, in the Howard Hughes Institute, when I returned to Michigan. I shared a floor with Francis Collins, which, you know, I, I was uh, incredibly impressed with Francis then, and obviously he's gone on and to now, do phenomenal yeah. things, yeah. but but uh, to see him buzzing around the lab was pretty special. Um, and then also Gary Nabel was there, Jeff Lydon uh, was there, Craig Thompson. Uh-huh. I mean, it was just unbelievable place. And they, we were all young assistant professors just going for it with Howard Hughes funding that was not quite limitless, but we didn't have to worry about yeah. money. Yeah, yeah. And, exactly. so, and so it was competitive, exciting, really a unique environment for me. And, 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 and I, I'm glad I went back to Oh, Michigan sure. Yeah. That. I mean, that, that just must have been, you know, like you said, you're competitive and you have all these other scientists who are top notch working side by side along with them. It must have all, you know, you drive yourselves forward almost. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but so your wife obviously went with you to MIT and back. Did you have children yet? Yeah, we had two children uh, when we were uh, in Boston uh-huh. um, and a third while we were in Ann Arbor. And I was in Ann Arbor for about five years. Did, did having children, did that, you know, change your research uh, schedule or style? Or did you find it easier to be in the lab because you're, you know, now you have a family or, or, or less easy because you don't want to be away from them? Or did it change it in any way? Um, 
I always worked hard, put a lot of time in, and my wife has supported me in ways that uh, have made me what I am. Yeah. And 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 in that way, the kids were still young. You have to realize during residency back then there were no rules, so I was never around. I mean, I was rarely home. Um, and then when I got back into the lab, it did afford me more flexibility with my time for yeah. sure. Yeah. Which, which as I as I saw going forward, that while it would be demanding when you're in science, it, it's not as structured as when you're a physician. Yeah. Right. So you can move your hours around. It sounded right. like. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so you're back in Michigan. Yeah. Right. So Michigan was was exciting because gene therapy was just starting to be appreciated, <clears throat> um, and the question was, uh, what direction will we take the science? And it, and we went in two directions. Uh, one was, we moved into in vivo uh -huh. gene therapy, and that was really driven through the encouragement of Francis, because that was a, soon after I arrived. Uh, he had he and his colleagues from Canada had discovered the gene that causes cystic fibrosis, and he had asked me to work together to try to develop a gene therapy approach. And that clearly was going to require ways to deliver the gene directly right. into the patient rather than take cells out. And that started the trajectory of in vivo gene therapy, and that brought me to the other vector system that I worked on, another one uh, based on adenoviruses. On the other side we felt it was worthwhile considering moving into the clinic in gene therapy with our FH program. And that was at about the same time that Gary Nabel mm -hmm. was also uh, uh, considering moving into the clinic uh, in models of cancer uh, where there's a direct DNA injection to stimulate immune responses. So, so Gary's program and my program were moving in parallel uh, towards phase one clinical trials. Mm -hmm. It was... Um, Exciting, somewhat competitive, I would say, yeah. uh, because uh, at that point in time, uh, anytime you did anything in the clinic, it was a first in many, many different ways. Yeah. Yeah. The hospital and the university supported both of us. We had to develop. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. 
manufacturing facilities. So, so for for our program, we had to we had to resect a section of liver, grow liver cells, use retroviruses, harvest them. I mean, an incredible, incredibly complicated. Uh, in you know, in in the context of today, archaic approach, but. But that's the way in which we have developed this in the rabbit models. And, 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 the, and at that point, as a society, and it, uh, the stakeholders were not yet ready for directly injecting vectors. Yeah. We weren't there yet. And we actually initiated those trials, uh, which was incredibly exciting. Uh, five subjects that underwent this transplant genetically modified hepatocyte infusion protocol. And, and they all did fine. A few of them demonstrated some decrease in cholesterol, but it wasn't, it wasn't uh, large enough that I thought it was worth pursuing. Right. And so then Bill Kelly, who had then left Michigan uh-huh. and gone to Penn, literally almost the day I arrived, he told me that um, I wanted to stay at Michigan. I wanted to stay in the environment there and benefit from it. My family was from Michigan. And we had our third child. Yeah, but he uh, he finally uh, gave me an offer I couldn't refuse uh, to come back to Penn to build a gene therapy program. This is the Institute for Human Gene Therapy. That's the Institute. Right? For so human he was starting gene. that and was recruiting you. Was recruiting me to you know to build that. Had not been to Philadelphia other than passing through once, uh-huh. but but in, enjoyed Ann Arbor, but also uh, felt both Lisa and I, that we'd probably migrate back to the East Coast, uh, which uh, which this gave us an opportunity to do. Yeah. Okay, so then he brings you in. Oh, How yeah. was he doing that? Oh, no, we we recruited quite a few outstanding investigators. We recruited a guy by the name of Dan Rader. He was my first recruit. Oh, yeah. Dan, um, Dan's, in his job description, uh, was to work with me to eventually develop a gene therapy approach for FH. And Dan came from the NIH where he had done some outstanding work in, in lipid metabolism. Uh-huh. And I think we've eventually gotten to that point where we're, uh, and so I've worked with Dan over 20 years. And another person that I recruited uh, a few years after I got there uh, to really head up a, a, an effort in gene therapy for cancer was Carl June, who I got to know and has yeah. become my best friend. We ride bikes all the time together. Oh, yeah? uh-huh. So there, there were a number of really important recruits, but, but back then the emphasis was on clinical translation. The technology that we had at the time were retroviruses, mm-hmm. naked DNA, and adenoviruses that we were developing for cystic fibrosis, in which they had the ability to efficiently transfer genes in vivo, uh, but there were issues regarding uh, immune responses, and we, we were just beginning to appreciate those those. Uh, the biology that that un, that underlies the immune responses to the adenovirus, and, and we spent and others spent a lot of time trying to engineer the adenovirus to prevent these immune responses. After uh, initial data were generated, both in animals and in, in the CF trials, uh-huh. um, and so, but but there was this 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 focus on on moving into the clinic. This is the '90s, late '90s. Where are we? Yeah, this would be. I came to. Penn in 93. 93. So this would be mid 90s, I would say. Mm-hmm. And then you you founded Genovo. There was a com- out of Penn. There was a company that that was started out of Penn, and it was really based on my uh, discussions that I had uh, uh, with a number of investors uh, that had been 
talking to me for quite a while. But I felt that my efforts should be directed to building an academic program. And, uh-huh. and there were resources available through NIH and, 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 and through foundations. But, but eventually, we decided uh, to, found, to found this company, Genovo, uh, and we were able to get some resources through Genovo to support programs at Penn. And so then, eventually, we get to the first gene therapy clinical trial. Mm-hmm. Okay, and this is run by Genovo and Penn simultaneously? No. So I had done, started clinical, clinical trials in Michigan. Uh-huh. Um, the first ones we started at Penn were probably for CF. Also, there were a number of cancer trials using adenoviruses to express uh, cytokines and also to elicit immune responses. And, and then the question for us <clears throat> was, well, for me, my interest had always been uh, the liver as a target, mm-hmm. with FH being the model. And how that played out was soon after I arrived at Penn, I uh, met with Mark Batshaw, who at that time, um, very he was a child, uh, incredibly successful uh, academic physician who had dedicated his life to trying to develop treatments mm-hmm. for a group of diseases called urea cycle uh, disorders, uh, one of which is caused by a defect in an enzyme called ornithine transcarbamylase, or we'll call it OTC. Mm-hmm. And, and I had been aware of this, these groups of diseases, in my days at Michigan. And in fact, I had my first program project grant was focused on developing gene therapy for OTC deficiency back in the very early days. But when, when I met, met Mark, uh, he suggested that we work together and that uh, this could be an appropriate initial target for right. moving forward with in vivo gene therapy for the liver, and really driven by this significant unmet need. While in FH, uh, if it's very severe, at that time was essentially un, uh, not easily treated. Patients can die of heart attacks when they were young, but in OTC deficiency, that if you have a severe defect, that newborns uh, uh, is associated with significant mortality, 50% mortality. I yep. mean, the unmet need is just remarkable. And, and Mark uh, was quite persuasive. And so I said, let's, let's put together a grant and let's, let's get started. The approach would be in vivo, uh, not ex vivo. And the vector that we're currently developing is based on an adenovirus. Anybody who follows the biotech industry or gene therapy is sort of aware of this trial. Mm-hmm. Can we go through how it played out? Sure. So we um, we had engineered the virus uh, to try to make it as safe as possible, did experiments in mice and monkeys mm-hmm. to, to define doses that we thought would be safe, designed a trial, typical phase one study, in which uh, we would uh, begin at a low dose and escalate uh, forward. Um, Mark and a colleague of mine, Steve Raper, ran the trial. He was the, the PI? The PI. Uh, Steve Raper was the PI, and Mark provided uh, support with respect to the metabolic aspects. These were all adults. Mm-hmm. There was debate, a lot of debate as to whether we should simply just go into newborn children where the unmet need was huge. Um, and the, really, the whole community came together around, no, you should start in adults, for a variety of ethical considerations, such as uh, consent is easier, yeah. and, and, and there were other considerations as well. And 
and escalated uh, the dose up through um, a variety of cohorts. And we were in the, in the final cohort, uh, the first subject, which would have been the highest dose. The first subject did fine, uh, similar kinds of findings. There was fevers, small elevations in, in some uh, 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 laboratory measures. Uh, and, then, and then the second subject who received the vector, his name is Jesse Gelsinger, who uh, had a, a completely different response than the first uh, subject in the, uh, at, that, at that dose. I mean, he started the same, right? This fever. Started the same. It looked the yeah. same as everyone else, and then it sort of, okay, go ahead. And then within 24 hours, uh, it, it became very clear that uh, it was uh, evolving into something much worse that eventually over four or five days uh, led to a systemic inflammation and when you have systemic inflammation, your organs start yeah. to are compromised, including your lungs. And then when your lungs begin to fail, then you can't oxygenate. And then ultimately, he died from that, I think, five days after he received the vector. Yeah. So a few things happened after that. We know it shut down that trial, of course. Yeah. It shut down gene therapy. Um, not, I, I wouldn't assume basic research, but there weren't going to be any more gene therapy trials. Uh, damaged the school's reputation, I think. Um, there was fallout for I don't know how long. Um, I mean, the question is, how did you uh, get through this? What did you learn? How did you move forward, both, I think, professionally and, and maybe personally? Well, the, I mean, the first thing that we had to do uh, was uh, to come together as a team and make sure that we did everything we could to learn why this happened, this tragedy happened to this young man. Um, and... And, and that required focus in, in, a, in a setting in which it could be, one could easily become unfocused. Yeah. And just try to understand this. Was a mistake made? Was it the wrong dose? Was, it, was there a problem with the material? Uh, and what emerged from that was um, uh, the observation that he, as opposed to others, and including the young the young woman who received the vector at the same dose had uh, an accentuated uh, or more severe response to the vector very early. So all of the immune problems that we were thinking about were related to more delayed uh, immune activation like T lymphocytes. Mm -hmm. When we went back and analyzed samples of blood, that there was evidence that this immune activation was occurring literally while the vector was going in, in immediate not not exactly an anaphylactoid reaction, but but something course, very very yeah. very severe that uh, was not anticipated. That led then to um, a whole new line of research. What? So sorry. The concept being that he may have been exposed to that virus previously. That's the current hypothesis, but but others um, others with pre-existing immunity did not react uh, the same, react the same way, uh, and. Uh, and there was something, the hypothesis, there was something different about his pre-existing immunity that somehow complex with the vector that, uh, that worsened the response of, you know, inflammatory cells and, you know, whatever. Um, so that's, that's what emerged as the hypothesis. I mean, I'm going to assume that um, this was a, a, a dark period. I mean, a young man lost his life, right? So how did you move forward? Well, um, I mean, you're right. At the end of the day, 
a, a young man uh, who volunteered, who waited till he was 18 to participate in this trial, um, came so he could help others. Um, and he died. And, it, and, 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 and that's what that was about. And we can't forget that. However, then what what happened? What happened to our program? What happened to the field? I, I, you know, I think we all had to take a step back and say, do we have the technology we need to make this succeed? And it's a pause, and maybe a reset. Yeah. Um, and and I felt, uh, you know, pausing. And, and you're right uh, that there was an erosion of support for our program at Penn, that we were asked not to continue to conduct clinical trials, all very appropriate. Uh, but that brought us back into the lab. I mean, th this, this was a new modality. And every time there's a new modality, we see things like this. There's a Senate subcommittee uh, formed to look at gene therapy, much like people are now um, very tightly looking at CRISPR. Right. Um, same thing when antibodies are first formed. Yeah. So that's not unusual. Um, but in the past, what it's been 15 years, roughly, uh, the science has progressed. Yes. And let's talk about how it's progressed. Why is it different today? And also not only progressed, but there's a very high interest in gene therapy. Again, we have Bluebird, we have Spark, right. your uh, new spin out Regenix Bio. Um, what are the, what are the advances that are making, uh, gene therapy? I don't want to, I mean, I don't want to say hyped, but there's great interest in it again. Sure. Um, so we needed... Uh, a better delivery vehicle. It's all about delivery, right? Mm -hmm. For gene therapy, it's about delivery. For antisense, it was about delivery. For yeah. RNAi, it's about delivery. And if you're talking about delivery challenges, we'll talk about CRISPR-Cas9. Right. But anyway, it was all about delivery. And um, and I became sort of a virologist through transiting our research through retroviruses and adenoviruses. And we felt that uh, we should focus on uh, on a on on a family of viruses that have this uh, that inherently are non-immunogenic and non-inflammatory, and that led us to the field of uh, of vectors based on adeno-associated viruses or AAV, for which a few had been discovered years before and were beginning to be evaluated for um, gene therapy applications, but they were very inefficient. So the first thing we did was uh, to develop a vector around one of these initial few isolates that had been kind of ignored. It was called AAV1. We were able to develop a vector around that, show that it was much better than the standard, which was based on AV2 in terms of transferring genes into muscle. So that indicated to me that maybe the direction we ought to go is to find AV7, AV8, AV9. Mm -hmm. Presume they're different than the first six, and possibly better. AV1, it turns out, was eventually through Genova, was licensed into the company that I had started, and then sublicensed to eventually Unicure, which then formed the basis for the product Glybera. Now approved. That's now approved. Europe, in Europe, yeah. Approved in Europe, right. Um, but uh, so, so we went looking for, for AAV in the wild. Uh, and what was fascinating about that from a scientific standpoint is that the first AAVs were not isolated from biological sources. They were actually identified in laboratory preps of adenoviruses. So we didn't know where to look for them. But we wanted, we wanted to use, and, and I feel, I mean, this is, this is my approach, wanted to use the power 
of in vivo selection in viral fitness and immune pressure to create a repertoire of viruses uh-huh. that we could then identify, discover, evaluate as potential gene therapy vectors rather than engineer them in, in the test tube. I'm a fan of using in vivo pressure in fitness to create diversity. And in this case, to maintain this immune privilege, mm-hmm. because after that experience, number one, two, and three is safety. Yeah. And it has to be non-inflammatory, non-immunity. And that's where I came from. And that's why we selected AAV. And we, and we did not initially try to engineer outside where we may inadvertently mess up this incredibly potentially important property. So we did, and, and, and we were able to identify these uh, new AAVs as latent genomes, which was not known at the time. Uh, had a whole bunch of them, hundreds of them, literally. Started to evaluate them, and almost with the first two, AAV7 and AAV8, they were 100-fold better than the others. That was a game changer. I knew this was this is what the field needed. It needed to be understood. It needed to be tested. Um, and and we really had published it, and we aggressively tried to enable others to use these vectors, and eventually these novel AAVs became best in class. Yeah, that's basically the way it's done now. Yeah. The way it's done now for virtually over three quarters of new INDs are with these vectors. A lot of the companies that have uh, gone public recently uh, have either been based on this technology or um, have li- have licenses to this technology. Is Spark? Is Spark using it? Spark? I'm not sure what Spark is using. Do you guys interact at all? Not really. No. This is slightly coming off the Clibera approval in Europe, uh, it, they've decided not to seek approval in the U.S. because they felt the FDA wanted some more trials and they thought we're never going to be able to recoup the money for these trials because it's going to be difficult to sell that drug, mm-hmm. which comes down to the, the question of pricing for gene therapy products. Um, I mean, you've written about this before. It's a difficult question because, number one, if gene therapy is working the way we want it to, it is one injection, right? And it may yeah. cure the problem or it may push the disease away for seven or eight years. You know, how do we move forward on pricing for these sorts of products? Well, it's something that worried me for many years. And even before we had this proof of concept in, 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 in humans, and I had a number of conversations with a mentor of mine, uh, a guy by the name of Roy Vagelos, mm-hmm. who basically was sort of the father of the modern-day uh, pharmaceutical industry through his work at Merck. Yeah. And, and he was chairman of the board at, uh, at Penn. So I got to know, know Ryan, and I would talk to him about it. And at some point, he, he turned to me, sort of put, uh, put his uh, hand on my shoulder and, and looked at me and said, Jim, if you show that this really, really works, I mean, really, really helps people, cures diseases, we'll figure out a way to sell it. The lesson that I took home from that is we need to bring forward transformative products, yeah. not marginal products. Yeah. I mean, products that just really just knock it out of the park. And, and on that basis, I think we can possibly move forward aggressively on pricing. Uh, and, and the first-generation products may not be the best examples of that. But when, when we do, and it looks like as a community this will be tested in Europe, both with Glybera and possibly through our colleagues at Spark with uh-huh. the product for Libra's congenital amaurosis. Um, 
I worry about the million dollar drug. Yeah. I mean, I wor- you, you just wor- said, I'm sorry, you just said move forward aggressively with pricing. Yeah. And I think that is where, I mean, for those who work in this industry, they know what it costs to develop a drug. Many people don't. And, and they just see these price tags. And um, I think they worry about pr- aggressive pricing, quite frankly. And this is going to be another one because it's taken, I mean, how many years have we been working on gene therapy before right. everything, anything's ever approved? And that's the, you know, that's the sticky part. Well, well, we got it. We have to figure it out. There's absolutely no doubt, and this is not my world. Yeah, but I'm 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 confident that we will have available treatments that will cure kids with awful disabling lethal diseases. I mean, it's coming. Yeah, it's incredibly exciting. And shame on us if we can't figure out figure this out. Shame on us, and. And it's market failure. So we got to be thinking out of the box here. You know, we got, I, I, don't, I don't know what, it, we have to come together. What does worry me uh, a bit is, is that this enthusiasm of the investors with respect to gene therapy, which is largely orphan disease based for all kinds of reasons, is going to diminish because of uh, concerns and disappointments over pricing, mm-hmm. and and that and that would be a shame. Technically working, curing diseases. So you're you're exactly right. This is a huge issue right now about what the trajectory of gene therapy is going to be in rare diseases. It led us, led me, uh, to connect with a old friend of mine, Troy Brennan, who was chief medical officer at CVS, uh, who we um, we've stayed very close. Um, and tried to find a way to write something together. So I approached him because he had been at Aetna before, uh-huh. uh, you know, to brainstorm about this. <clears throat> and we, so we spent a lot of time talking about it, and, and, uh, and I'm sure we're, we weren't the first to think about it, but, but the approach that we suggested was based on an annuity system where you don't have a one-time, big-time payment, but to spread that out over time uh, and really began a discussion. Uh, this was published in Nature Biotechnology a few years ago that, that now... I think is uh, is dominating the narrative uh, out there. I, I was just at an investor meeting in Boston. We had eight sessions, various topics. Every one degenerated into a debate about pricing. Yep. yep. Every one of them. Yep. The concept of, as you mentioned, sort of a, a, an upfront payment when the injection goes in, if you will. And then the, the recurring payments... Um, may vary based on how effective the treatment has been. If you know, if you think it's going to push your disease back for seven years and after three it's not doing that, then mm-hmm. that's the end of your payments. Right. Um, I think that has legs. I mean, I think that, I mean, I read the, I read the piece, of course, mm-hmm. um, and I thought it had, I thought it was sort of thinking outside the box. It's not only gene therapy where it's a problem. It's all new modalities are, are going to be like this, it seems like. You know, I don't know what the answer is. And, and, and when you try to um, implement that, what, I, what I've become to appreciate is it's... Uh, there are different challenges in different uh, locations and different payer systems. Interestingly, a government-based payer, not a private payer system, may be easier. Yeah. I mean, yeah. in the United States, with pri- private payers, I, the arguments that come forward are maddening. You know, like, well, in our country, you move from payer to payer every three years. So how could one payer assume the obligation of the other one? That's a great question. It's a real question. It's a real issue. We got to figure this out. Yeah, yeah, because people switch insurances all the switch, time. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's a reality of our of, of our current system, and and it, and it may be policy, uh, 
and, and it may be law that has to change this, but, but I think we're not ready to really, really assert ourselves in this area until we have a few more real hits. hits. And at, at that point, our society is going to come together and I and I trust in the United States that that uh, that there will be pressure put forward, whether it's with the government or whatever, you know, you know, solve this to do something to, to do, do something, something big. About yeah. It. yeah. Your thoughts on on the future of gene therapy? I mean, it's a broad question, but are, you remain hopeful. Well, let's talk about today. Um, today, uh, we will see examples of products that are to succeed in more than marginal ways. I'm incredibly excited about the work coming out of Avexis with uh, SMA, mm-hmm. uh, with a vector that came out of our lab, AV9, you know, just for an example, talking about a disease with unmet need. Um, programs, um, lysomal storage disease programs that we're working on with, with Regenix is very exciting. But I do have some concerns, and, and that is that um, this is only the beginning. So getting back to my wife, Lisa, uh, the other day I, 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 uh, we were having dinner and uh, noting how, how much harder I'm working at the age of 60 than I was before. And I indicated to her that, you know, Lisa, I think my career is finally going to begin. And she said, what well, took you so long? Yeah. But, but, but it really, we're finally there. We, we finally can, can, you know, generate good data in humans, learn from that, make it better, but it's only the beginning. And much of what's going on in, 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 the, um, in the clinic is, is still translational science. So, so there will be failures. And I'm concerned that the investment community views one failure as indicating everything's going to fail. Or, or one success, and then everything's going to succeed. We are still... We are in the first, we are back where biotech was before in the early days of Genentech. And, and I think people have to appreciate that. The, the, the good news is, is that the tools we have now um, as, as biomedical scientists are just astounding. And the information that we can glean from one subject receiving a vector is incredibly insightful. So this is only going to be... It's only going to get better, and it's going to get better. But there are iterations. This is not the end game. Right. And I'm not sure that message message gets out there. I think so. Can we talk about Bluebird? Yeah. Briefly. yeah. So they just had data out on um, sickle cell. Yeah. And and the plan was, or the thought was, that this was going to cure the disease. And their early data that they just reported suggesting that might not be the case. Right. Uh, investors are bothered by that, not only for that company, but others working in the field. Um, you're saying that doesn't bother you so much because because we're at the beginning. These tweaks need to be made. I, yeah, I, I, I absolutely uh, agree with that. I mean, un- unfortunately, what also happened with, re- with respect to sickle is, is kind of what happens to you in science every once in a while, which is kind of your worst nightmare, and that's the first experiment you do is your best. Yeah. <laughs> and so the first subject was a great result, and I've been in that situation. You keep chasing that one down, yeah. but uh, it could have been different the way it played out if right. it played out a little differently, but... Um, but they're learning from it, and there it's vector copy numbers and transduction efficiencies, and there's going to be mid, mid-course corrections. Uh, they've done an, an incredible job on the, on the production of vector. Uh, Mitch Feiner, who was a postdoc with me with Richard, had, had led that effort, and, 
and they're science driven, but but there will be iterations, and and I hope, I hope the stakeholders uh, uh, are patient with that. Um, the sense of urgency is there. Drug development, you can't pivot too easily, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we all have to build that into our expectations, build that into our programs. Do you think you just mentioned your wife talking to you about how hard you're working and that you're 60 now? But um, do you think about your legacy in this field at all? I mean, gene therapy and your name are, are pretty much linked. Yeah, you know, I mean, we all have egos, so I, uh, yes. Um, but I, but I think about. I mean, I got into this because of patients. Mm-hmm. I've stayed in the academy. Could very well imagine I've had opportunities to leave yep. and to go into biofarm. Uh, I have wonderful collaborations with 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 biofarm. Um, I just love science. I <laughs> just tell you, I love technology. The harder it gets, the more excited I. I, I so so the fact that I we can that the perspective is it's only the beginning means there's a lot more science for me to do and for people in my lab. I think that's what drives me. In terms of legacy, um, I, um, when, when you think about and you participate in a translational field where your focus is on therapy, the ultimate legacy has to play out. It takes a while, right? Bone marrow transplantation was recognized only years and years after sort of this all began. And so I think it's going to be a while for us to see how how substantial that gene therapy is going to be. But I'm convinced that ultimately, and my focus is on rare diseases, that, 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 this, is, that this is huge. I mean, you have to realize in, in rare genetic diseases, it was a diagnostic-based discipline. Mm-hmm. You came, you got your diagnosis, and that was it. And that was it. That is no longer the case. Changing the practice of genetics to make it therapeutic is, is kind of what I think about, and some of the colleagues that collaborators that we've put together at Penn, and more recently, to provide me with a broader sort of mandate. Uh, I was uh, asked to take over the Orphan Disease Center at Penn. So I'm thinking about this in a much broader way as well. Yeah. Do you still think of Jesse Gelsinger? Frequently. And in, in what ways? Well, I think about about him. I never met him um, as an individual. I think about the impact that this had on his family. I think about how disappointed I am in myself that uh, this may have eroded support for a field that I had pioneered and mm-hmm. still believe in. Um, but I'm focused on making a right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and we're well on our way, but we're not done yet. Thank you. We, we worked a while to get you in here. Thank you for, for making the trip. It was uh, a pleasure. Appreciate the talk. Great. it is your first rounders podcast with jim wilson Uh, we had to juggle schedules a little bit to get jim in here and i appreciate his effort so thank you for that as usual my thanks go out to the midwest quiet for use of their music and absolutely thanks to listeners for continuing to subscribe to this feed and download the podcast for those of you who are looking for more information on either the more information on the uh, jesse gelsinger clinical trial or jim's paper on pricing around gene therapy 
Um, go to our blog, Trade Secrets, which you can find on the homepage of Nature Biotechnology, and look for the post on December 22nd. And um, I'll put up a bunch of links to some information that is uh, that will supplement this podcast. We are headed into the holiday break in New York, so the next one of these will be in 2016. So until then, um, take care of yourselves, and uh, until next year, goodbye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.